Hello and welcome back to our special program of Research Radio that focuses on Dr. B R Ambedkar and his mission of achieving liberty, equality and fraternity. I'm Abhishek and on this week's episode we'll focus on Dr. Ambedkar's views on fraternity, political change, savarnas, the law and his relationship with Periyar. My guest today is feminist historian and translator V Geeta. Dr. Geeta writes in English and Tamil on gender, caste, education and labor. She's also worked on the Tamil non-Brahmin and anti-caste movements and on feminist practices in the Indian context. She's published several articles in EPW and we'll focus on two today. I've shared links to both in the show notes. Also, do stick around till the end since we'll be asking Geeta a few rapid-fire questions. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us, Geeta. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start by discussing Dr. Ambedkar's concept of fraternity and maitri. Fraternity, as you write, quote, was not only about establishing conditions that make for freedom and equality for the oppressed, but equally about the remaking of the oppressive self, its disposition towards others, end quote. What does fraternity mean in terms of remaking the oppressive self for savarnas? As we all know, Ambedkar understood the caste system to be a study in graded inequality. So you have simple inequality. Some people are rich, some are poor, some are white, some are black, and that's a straightforward division of society into the dominant and the subordinate. But um, Ambedkar pointed to the fact that in caste society, there's no simple inequality. What you have is graded inequality. So here we are, all stacked on top of each other, like in a pyramid. So Ambedkar pointed out that this is a very strange pyramid because you keep going up the pyramid. Uh, you gain respect you keep coming down the pyramid you face humiliation and uh, you face disrespect basically so no one is equal to anyone in the caste order this means that to quote him again no one is their brother's keeper so he felt that the caste order was fundamentally a non fraternal order where depending on wherever we are we might be affectionate towards people like us it's not that we can't love each other at all it's not that we are emotionally incapacitated but then chances are most of us would show fellow feeling towards someone who's from our own social context shares the same sort of world view or occupies the same social space and if we are to interact with someone else that's likely to be fraught we're constantly trying to suss out who you are where you're from are you my kind are you not my kind and so on and so forth um, and ambedkar also pointed out while this is not unusual the world over this happens what is unusual is that this sort of uh, differences that all of us sort of negotiate are not just differences but they are arranged in an unequal fashion graded inequality is all about that so in a social situation where no one is equal to anyone else where no person is their brother's or sister's keeper there's a general lack of goodwill and affection and this to him was a very serious matter because inequality is not simply about some people having more and some people having less but it's also about how some are seen as not deserving more and as deserving only the worst and this is what he called inequity and the caste system he said in his very important essay triumph of brahmanism in the caste system we are all co-sharers in inequity we don't share respect we don't share affection but we share inequity so whatever happens to each of us in the social order some of us benefit some of us suffer but neither the benefit nor the burden is equal then what does one do and very early on in the 1920s when he led dalits to um, access water from a public tank in mahad um, he wrote a series of editorials in his bahishkrit bharat and he said the problem is this so you have these upper castes right you have the brahmins 
and they can afford to be carelessly benevolent because frankly nothing sticks to them uh, whatever they do they remain rabbits whereas dalits have no choice but to struggle and to fight but he said the huge middle order of people whom we uh, refer to contemptuously as the shudras or in today's parlance mbcs obcs and bcs they are in a very um, odd position because they resent the brahmins but they want to be like them but they cannot experience fellow feeling with the dalits so for him to work with the shudra question was very important and we need to remember for him the shudras were also savarnas because dalits were the only ones who were avarnas along with the aboriginal tribes and what in his time were called the primitive tribes and the criminal tribes and so on so he worried a lot about the shudra question and he was very concerned about democratizing shudra life and and that to him was very essential if we all ought to become fraternal now as far as the brahmins were concerned or the more uh, other dwijas kshatriyas or, or the banyas were concerned he didn't have any great illusions about their readiness for fraternity he didn't think they were going to sort of embrace their fellow hindus with great affection or interest but he also argued that while that is ideologically the case and that's perhaps a general thing it's possible that individuals do make the cut and that they do re-examine their premises their lives and want to be fraternal but that did not mean that you don't fight brahmanism therefore nor did you constantly say i am against brahmanism but not against individual brahmins that's too simplistic so you do pressurize the brahmins and the other upper castes in ways that they would challenge their own caste people so for him social reform was not so much that you went around saying all of us are equal all of us must love each other and so on that was important yes but you also went back home and you made sure that your family and your kinship group and your caste also sort of reflected and and experienced a measure of guilt and remorse and did something about it so to turn against one's own caste persons was for him uh, i would say a very important point of departure if the so called upper caste were to be invited into maitri so you therefore start looking at your own caste context and start questioning that turn traitorous to your own caste this is something he more or less says in those same words not in a spirit of anger or vengeance but in a spirit of critique principle critique in a spirit of let's say critical non cooperation of opposition and so on but in all this he never forgot that especially towards the end of his life that maitri was something that was completely given right you had to be fraternal you know it's like that those lines from wh orden which orden later on regretted writing we must love each other or die you know ambedkar of course didn't say that but he did think that if we are to remain a society we'd better be fraternal there is no society without fraternity so in that sense he wished to point to the dwijas to the swarnas to the shudras that we want to stay human we have no choice but to be fraternal and he invited people into fraternity but constantly arguing with them by pushing them to re-examine themselves by asking them to change their ways of thinking and doing and acting and you know you see this during the constituent assembly debates he is so patient he is so rational one can see the seething anger underneath those words which come out very civil very principled but he is really pushed to sort of constantly defend equality and fraternity and liberty so this for me really is the way he let's say lives out maitri acts out maitri so to speak and uh, therefore i think he wanted um, the um, savarnas and the upper caste to really sort of push themselves to ask what keeps them entitled and powerful and to fight for that sort of everyday democracy he valued and there's no better evidence of this than in the letter he wrote to av takar who was at that time in charge of the anti untouchability league 
Thakur was a Gandhian and went to head the Harijan Sevak Sangh. Now, Ambedkar said, look, if you want to do something by way of endorsing Dalit rights, it's best that you support their rights to civil resistance, to equality, not feel protectionist about them. That's not what Dalits want. So I think that's the sort of charge he placed on um, the Savarnas. That's his invitation to Maitri. It's a tough invitation, but nevertheless an invitation. Yeah. Uh, I think one that's rooted in the realities. Um, and and I think uh, related to that is also, we already started talking about uh, his um, activism in um, the Mahat district. Uh, I was curious about this period from 1925 onwards, uh, where you've you know uh, identified a few key ways where that Dr. Ambedkar was trying to uh, experiment, trying different political methods that could help address inequalities, inequities. So could you walk us through uh, this question of whether political power, uh, which, uh, you know, at some points he felt could address uh, untouchability, uh, particularly because you also, you know, note that uh, Dr. Ambedkar, you know, quote, wondered if political democracy could sustain itself without working at creating conditions for economic and social justice, end quote. Ambedkar was an ethical idealist, but he was also a man who wanted to act on his idealism. That might sound paradoxical, but basically he wasn't one for simply stating principles. Principles had to be made to work. So politics seemed the realm of the possible. Politics was, you know, to quote another very famous leader, it's the realm of history. So this is where you are, this is where you find yourself, this is where you can get things done. So what did he ask of politics? A, that it creates the conditions for Dalits to be present in public life, to make their point of view known to enter into a kind of civil and political dialogue with others. And he hoped that this experience, you know, sitting together, talking, exchanging views and ideas, bringing your point of view across. And your point of view is simply not an individual point of view. It bears the weight of historical experience. It bears the imprint of what it means to be an untouchable, what it means to actually live through that experience. You know, you bring that to the table. And he felt that would make for what he cherished, which is what is defined by him as associated life that you know this goes back to your earlier question about fraternity that you experience a measure of civil fraternity in a public context and that will reschool all of us not just the Dalits it not just that it will make them feel part of this larger context but those others those non-Dalits will also learn to value and appreciate um, a different and another and an agonistic point of view something that they might see as opposed to what they stand for but which really is not which really is sort of uh, putting forth this argument that we all need to be equally civil and human. So that's why he felt the political realm could be useful for Dalits. But he had some very interesting and specific things to say about that. So how do I enter politics? Um, is my identity as a Dalit, as a so-called untouchable, enough for me to be part of this political space? In a very simple sense, yes, because Ambedkar made it very clear that no one can represent Dalits than Dalits themselves. As he famously put it in his uh, deposition to the South Borough Commission, who can represent a Dalit interest? Because nobody else has that person confiscated, he says. Those are his words. So their interests are the most fundamental, the most important, because they have that person's confiscated. So who can represent them but, th but themselves? So Dalit representation was also something very crucial and very important. And now you sort of fast forward to the 1930s and you see why he demanded separate electorates. Dalits electing Dalits was completely logical given the way in which they were secluded, the way in which they were negativized, you know, made to feel they were worthless and nothing. And to speak from that position and claim that they were fully human and equal and democratic and 
wish to be fraternal and were lovers of liberty was a huge historical claim. So that was very important for him and he wanted Dalits to do that. But he was also always aware that, well, that he put you out there in a political space where you can be part of a political culture of debate and dissension. You would probably go back home and live in a Dalit ghetto, so to speak. You would probably have to put up with social stigma, of, with hierarchy, with discrimination in every aspect of your life. And your economic life doesn't change, therefore. You might be elected to parliament, but it's entirely possible you go back and you are an agricultural laborer. And for him, this was important because two things. One, socially, you are not accorded the value that you are accorded in politics, or at least it's possible to get that value in politics. You know, one person, one vote, that sort of a value. But in social life, there's hierarchy. In social life, there's stigma. There's untouchability. And the economics of untouchability was very concerned about because the so-called untouchables were economically dependent on the dominant caste. They didn't have land. They were not allowed the right to education. They couldn't access any sort of labor that they desired. Certain sorts of labor were imposed on them. And if they protested, they were subject to social boycott. So that was very important for him, therefore, that uh, the economics of untouchability was also challenged. So how do you challenge this? Can politics do that? Ambedkar was never sure that politics would do everything. Politics was necessary for Dalits to be part of political life, for others to experience the challenges and the uh, concerns that Dalits brought to the table. But more was required. And what was that? As he said um, in his um, deposition to the Simon Commission, when folks asked him, do you think this will solve Dalit's concerns, will they become more equal? He said, no, you cannot through a law of legislature make a person love their neighbor. That's not what this is about. But then it was obviously important for him to tell society that you must love your neighbor. If not as yourself, at least as a neighbor. So how do you bring about that love? Because that love is a social emotion. And for him, therefore, politics was necessary, but as important or more was a transformation of attitudes, of, of, of our notions of, of how we are, who we are, what we are. So the ethics of you know how we relate to each other was very important. And that cannot be mandated by law or politics. So you need to work in the social realm. You need to work at creating, enabling social conditions. And that's very important. And then you need to ensure that Dalits could fight for these rights from a position of relative economic security. Because otherwise, it's very easy for, and as we know from so many struggles of the oppressed, you could be clapped up, thrown in prison, and there's not even a soul out there who's going to get bail for you. You know, there's a lot of that stuff that we see around us. So basically, economic rights are very much the foundation on which you can stand and claim other rights also. They're part of the foundation. So from the 1920s, you see him doing all three things. So in the 1920s, you have Mahad, you also have Ambedkar wanting land for Dalits, fighting against the Maharvatan, saying that don't give us land and demand servile labor. Either make us owners of the land or let's just pay a tax and then have the right to sell it. He also says that let's rethink social attitudes. Do we want to remain Hindus? Should we become something else? This is something he starts thinking of even in the 1920s. He poses the question, why shouldn't we convert to Islam? What do we have to gain by being Hindus? And you know the famous burning of the Manusmriti in, the 19, in 1927. And you read his uh, depositions at the various roundtable conferences. And he's basically telling the colonial government, look, Dalits should be your first charge, whether you budget in terms of education or employment, whether you want to assure them their civil rights, you've got to be proactive. And he in fact says, it's not enough to say they should have rights. You must make it mandatory for an officer of the state to be challenged if he doesn't help Dalits realize their rights. 
So the state has to take it upon itself to make sure that Dalits could realize their rights and be, be proactive, not simply sort of ensure that nothing happens to them, but ensure that the conditions are created where they can experience rights. So I would say for him, therefore, from the beginning, all these three arenas were equally important and he keeps moving between all of them throughout. In the 1930s, he does this by saying, I won't die a Hindu. And he addresses the economic question by starting his independent labor party. He fights for separate electorates. That's what he does in the 30s. The 1940s, he does that in his time as a labor member in the Viceroy's Council. Um, he's interested in rethinking the constitutional basis of Indian, the future Indian state, his famous document, States and Minorities, which he submits to the Constituent Assembly. He's reading up a lot on Indian religious and philosophical history so that uh, he could be convinced and convince the world that Hinduism is not something that Dalits can hope to make their own or gain from. They have to exit this religion. So he keeps up a very fine, productive and delicate tension between all these three spheres, almost till the end of his life. I don't think he chooses one over the other ever. Strategically, he might, but not essentially. Right, right, right. Um, and I think at least with the political um, side of things, the, the legacy definitely persists because of the structures that he's he's put in place. Um, besides, obviously, the right. social and economic aspects as well that they, you know, are interdependent with. Um, and I wanted to extend this conversation and bring in uh, Periyar as well because of your uh, previous research, extensive research on Periyar uh, as well. Um, so if we could perhaps look at two specific areas where, you know, their thinking was similar um, and maybe two where they've diverged, that would be uh, quite insightful because both of them were contemporaries. Um, the points of similarity are very evident. They were both convinced that um, this entire social order is subject to the ideology of Brahmanism. And Periyar, in almost a sort of, without having read Ambedkar, likens the caste order to a sort of ladder that is installed in each of ourselves. You know? And we constantly measure other people by placing them on this or that step of the ladder. So his understanding of the caste order was very similar, that it was greater inequality, where nobody is equal to anyone else, no mutuality, no affection. Which is why he spoke of self-respect, Swabiman, that you have to respect yourself because this order doesn't allow you to respect yourself. Um, that was very important for Periyar and comradeship. He was the one who coined the term toyer in Tamil, which means comrade. And he said, let's leave aside any other kind of modes of address, brother, sister, uncle, whatever, you know, let's call each other comrades because comradeship is what this is all about. So as far as the realm of understanding caste and challenging caste, they were both very much on the same page. And of course, in challenging Brahmanism and Hinduism. Periyar had no illusions about Hinduism. In fact, he had even less illusions in Ambedkar. In the early stages of his political career, Ambedkar was willing to admit Hindus might experience remorse. So I think Ambedkar never seriously thought it was fully possible, but he did allow that space. Periyar was relentlessly. Also because he was a self-declared atheist, he didn't think that uh, religious sensibilities and ideas actually produce anything redeeming in human beings and so on. So there was that. But otherwise, Brahmanism and the caste order, yes. And the centrality of untouchability and women's subordination to the existence of the caste order, they both agreed that was indeed the case. The second thing on which they agreed was the role of the state in sort of mediating and arbitrating the kind of social injustice that you have, whether it's the colonial state or the proto-national state or the state to be. Ambedkar, of course, had a far more founded, learned sense of what the state was all about. And Periyar had a more political, polemical sense of what the state was all about, but they both accorded the state an important role. And both were great pedagogues. You know, they taught people in, in public spaces. 
The other thing that I think uh, united them was their fearlessness. They didn't sort of think that they ought not to be saying things or that they ought to carry a certain majority with them so they should mitigate whatever they are saying or none of that. Um, they were transparent, civil, rational. So all of this puts them in the same league. So those two things I would say. But two things I think are somewhat interestingly different. One is the way they conceptualize the Shudra untouchability relationship, Shudra Dalit relationship. See, Periyar came from a touchable past, as we know, and he was also well endowed in material terms. His father was a merchant and he was an important municipal notable and he commanded authority and affection and respect on account of his work as a municipal corporation chairperson and all the other stuff that he was doing. So there was a way in which he could address the Shudras with a certain amount of authority and anger and yet be heard. And I think he used that position he wielded within the very broad Shudra context to both humanize the Shudras as well as democratize the Shudras. And this democratizing the Shudras meant that you don't kowtow or look up to the Brahmin, you see yourself as equal to the Brahmin. Humanizing the Shudras meant in addition to being democratic in your relationship to the Brahmins, you're also democratic and also deeply sensitive in your dealings with the so-called untouchables. That whatever you expect from the Brahmins, you jolly will do the same for the untouchables. So if you want equality with the Brahmins, you have to allow the Dalits will demand equality from you. So he, he was very conscious of the fraught nature of that relationship, but he wanted to make sure that the Shudras looked upon their tasks both ways, in both directions. But he also knew that there was a certain autonomous aspect to the Dalit question. Untouchability was the bar sinister. So at some level, he also knew that that had to be addressed on his own terms. And when Ambedkar appears on the scene, he endorses him. And later on, when Ambedkar forms the Scheduled Caste Federation, he says, Dalits are now leaving us, but that's fine. They have their leader. They have their own organization, which is important. However, the Dravidar Kalam will continue to fight for Dalits. So he tried to hold this all in balance. Whereas, as I said earlier, for Ambedkar, it was far more complex because what would make the Shudras listen to him? Intellectually, yes, he challenges them. Politically and historically, he challenges them. Fraternally, he wants to unite with them, but he has very little wherewithal in a material sense to make them heed his concerns. So I think that was a big difference. And he also was very aware of the fact that that line of untouchability is not going to be easy to cross. It was because of that, everybody else felt that they could be content with their partial selves. So somebody who's very low in the social order still could say, hey, that one is untouchable, I'm better off. And so therefore not feel impelled to fight the social order as much as perhaps in other circumstances he or she might have. So he was faced with a lot more imponderables in that sense than Periyar was. The second thing is Ambedkar thought the form of the nation state was a historical form that one needs to accept and work with. Whereas Periyar felt the nation state, whatever its antecedents and historical sources, in the Indian context, it would necessarily be Brahmanical. It cannot be otherwise. You cannot reform what he called Hindu, Hindi, India. So what was his alternative? Dravidanadi, yes. But he didn't see Dravidanadi as a subnationalist claim. You know, It's not like I want my own state. Ravidanadu was a shape of utopia itself for Periyar. So he didn't have a firm political definition of what would things be in this Dravidanadu, except that it would be a caste-based society. The Brahmins will not, their authority will not hold sway. There'll be freedom of conscience. There will be economic justice. But these were all broad notions. They were not politicized in that sense. So his critique of the Indian state was his own, and he never gave up on it till the end of his life. Whereas I think Ambedkar tried to work with the form of the nation state. And lastly, 
Periyar was fundamentally a sex radical. His views on sexuality were constitutively radical because he felt that sexual mores are relative. Sexual mores are historical, contingent. There is no right or wrong mode of relating sexually. And every era and every historical moment will have to work with that. And he was very convinced that the most fundamental revolution had to take place in the lives of women. And that was both of a social, educational, economic sort of revolution, but also a sexual revolution, that women must be sexually autonomous, whether they have relationships with men, whether they have no relationships, whether they marry or don't, or remain mothers or don't wish to be mothers, you know, they were sexually autonomous beings, which I think was an incredibly radical thing to be saying. Ambedkar was very aware of gender and the structural role it played in the caste order. But he also had to work with this sort of sexual stigma that Dalit women were burdened with. So for him, therefore, fighting that stigma also meant that you squared up with more general notions of virtue or respectability. Whereas for Periyar, those were not important. So this was another difference. Right. right. I think you've given us a really uh, comprehensive answer to uh, really complex arguments. And I'm sure we can spend one episode discussing on those topics uh, respectively. And uh, to focus in on one of the points that we did that have been like recurring in our conversation is uh, the relationship that uh, Dr. Ambedkar saw for uh, Buddhism and for religion. Um, So one of the EPW articles that you published recently narrated uh, a quite uh, touching and powerful story to exemplify one aspect of uh, Dr. Ambedkar's book, Buddha or Karl Marx. So can we explore maybe a part of that story and what role that um, uh, Dr. Ambedkar saw for the state? In Ambedkar's life, socialism was a kind of a shadow presence. It haunted him. In as much as uh, it bothered him, it troubled him, was very critical of the way communism had historically evolved in the Indian context. But he was also very aware of the immense justice claims that socialism was putting forward and the immense humanitarian claims that lay at his heart. So it was not simply theoretical, conceptual or historical arguments that attracted him to socialism, but equally its ethical arguments. So he was influenced a lot by um, British uh, socialists, especially people that sort of worked with ethical arguments. That was very important for him. But, you know, characteristically, whatever he read, he reworked to address the Indian context. So therefore, um, towards the end of his life, when he had decided he would convert to Buddhism and he was exploring exactly how that was to be done, one of the questions he was faced with was, what could be the meaning of conversion at a time when religions were not really central to how people imagined uh, well-being or justice, right? So, for example, take the Buddhist countries, whether it was Burma, whether Vietnam or Cambodia or even parts of Indonesia. In all these countries, we know in the 40s, there were either anti-colonial movements or there were anti-colonial movements plus socialist movements. So these religions didn't really quite enjoy the kind of currency that they perhaps had done earlier. Of course, there were revivalist attempts, there were attempts to rethink Buddhism, but none of them could actually stand up to the kinds of claims that were being made by the socialists and the left. So for Ambedkar, the challenge was if he were to sort of convert to Buddhism along with whoever else was interested, then what about these countries where Buddhism has been historically present? And a significant section of populations there were saying, Buddhism maybe, but look, socialism is important. So how do you then work with the two together? And given that he's always been interested in socialism, I mean, if you read States and Minorities, you'll see that it's a very interesting document because at one level, it's like, you know, socialist planning. You have the planned society and the state sits on top of the commanding uh, sectors of the economy and it does does stuff and so on, collective farming and all of that. Influenced by the Soviet Union, but also by more generalized attitudes towards planning at this time. But 
Ambedkar also wants the state to be an ethical state. It's not enough if it's a planner's paradise. It's not enough if it's a proletarian state. This state has to be a good state, not just a just state. And what does it mean? Can a state be a good state? Just the fact that a state polices, the fact that it has an army, how will it be a good state? Can it check its powers? Can it check its authorities? And should that be done through constitutional means? That's a question, of course, everybody explores in the Constituent Assembly. But Ambedkar realizes that's not a very simple question because much is said on both sides, that states should have the right to override issues to do with freedom if it means that the country's security and sovereignty are at stake and the state should also be equal and just and kind. So people are saying both sorts of things. Now, for Ambedkar, for the state to both endorse liberty and equality, the state should be anchored in a sense of fellow feeling, of maitri. So what does it mean for a state to be imbued with maitri? You know, and here I think for me at least as a feminist, uh, it seems very important to make Ambedkar's maitri speak to the sort of ethics of care that feminists have been talking about. Not in the sentimental sense that you take care of people, which I think is, is enormous labor, but also that there's something extremely fundamental about the act of caring, which makes for society the fact that I am interested in your well-being, that I will ensure your well-being. And he wanted states to do that. You know, he, uh, and I think here he was influenced by Christian socialists like Richard Tawney, um, whose writings he was familiar with, and all of whom wanted the state not just to ensure justice, but well-being. And well-being is more than justice. Well-being is more than free health care. It is that you create the conditions for the working class, for the Dalits, for the Adivasis to experience that richness inside. You know? And that was very important for him. So he felt a state should do that. Now, can states do that? Historically, have states ever done that? This is, of course, a very important question. And I think for Ambedkar, it seemed if you had a faith like, a creed like Buddhism, which insisted on fraternity, if the creed of the Buddha could be something that those who work the state heeded, you know, um, then there is the possibility that the state will not just heed the call of the magistrate, as he called it, but also the call of the Dhamma. And he felt that the Ashokan state had been that way. Um, he felt that some of the republics in the Buddha's own time had been fashioned that way and that there's a lesson for us to learn from here. So justice and equality and liberty are not just ideas that we trust to in a cerebral sense, but that they become part of our everyday lives, our affective lives. And he thought the state had a pedagogic role to play in this respect. Going by the evolution of the history of states in our part of the world, it takes enormous good faith to stay with Ambedkar on this subject. But on the other hand, it was not that he was naive. He placed that charge on the state. He didn't think that states would fulfill it. But then it's up to us as citizens to keep that charge alive and going. Yeah, yeah. I guess because states, th there are constant attempts to improve and like, you know, call upon the state to act in more just ways, um, that there's a chance that this is always, I think, a work in progress. And uh, I wanted to speak a bit about uh, something that you've written about, about uh, Hindu caste behavior that I found quite interesting, uh, which was uh, this quote where you mentioned that, um, quote, uh, caste Hindu behavior is shaped by what he calls a law of persons, which may not have the sanction of modern courts, but which exists as custom, tradition, and habit, end quote. Um, so if we can just understand what, speculate on what Ambedkar meant here by law of persons. Ambedkar, as you know, was extremely well-read in uh, legal history. And uh, he takes this phrase from Roman law, where um, your civil status and your legal status sort of map onto each other in certain contexts. 
but he picks it up and he uses that phrase when he discusses the manusmriti the problem with the manusmriti is not that it is a text which sanctions discrimination and inequality but what really anguishes him you know it's really anguished is that even when it comes to criminal law and criminal law in most countries is uniformly applied you murder i murder both of us face the same consequences but criminal jurisprudence which is been developed on the basis of whatever is in the manusmriti he felt he did a law of persons so say for instance even if manusmriti endorses slavery it has a very graded understanding of who can be a slave to whom you know it's not like everyone can be everyone's slave in most societies that's the case if you lose everything you are a loser in a battle you get picked up by the victor you can become a slave but manusmriti tells you that the brahmin has the right to enslave xxxx the kshatriya only yyyy and so on so even in the realm of criminality there is greater inequality so this to him was the uh, absolute sort of um, evil secret of the caste order that law of persons is present even in areas of experience where you would expect something very clearly defined in terms of good and bad so that this was mapped on to birth based uh, dominance and birth based subordination bothered him a great deal so which is why he said you can have the law you can have the rights you can have the ipc but if the magistrate or of the police that are investigating your case sees you only as a person from that particular caste or that community and not as a citizen he or she is not going to ensure that the law will work its purpose so in the indian context he felt you can have laws but lawlessness can reign supreme and you can be lawless in an entirely legal sort of way because there's no way you can pinpoint and say this one acted in a caste spirit because a caste spirit works things to its advantage within the realm of the legal and i think today we understand that better when we look at something like say the prevention of atrocities against the scheduled castes and scheduled tribes act 1989 where i think the genius of that act lies in the fact it foresees how casteis we can be even in persecuting a case and it tries to sort of diminish that level of casteis behavior so the law of persons really is something that allows most of us in the social order to behave with casual impunity you know that i can get away with this i'm from a dominant caste i have a brother in law who is a sub inspector i my cousins aunts neighbor is a collector that sort of thing it's that kind of easy social entitlement that comes from caste uh, and the nexus of that caste network to into which you fit now today of course this caste network is not simply my own birth caste it includes castes that are coeval with mine whom i can count on it may not be a brahmin it may not be a banya if i am a brahmin i can count on a banya or even a bc community that's my co-sharer in a political sense you know so this is what ambedkar meant by the law of persons yeah, i think uh, that was quite lucid um and moving to uh, the the last uh, two questions that i had in mind for for this interview um is about the uh, your desire to simultaneously address the quote holy trinity of caste class and gender end quote in particularly important in a practical and everyday sense um so if we can uh, understand maybe one example where dr ambedkar has done this and uh, what its ramifications or legacy is for uh, anti caste or feminist and left movements today see when we think of ambedkar in a common sensical sort of way we immediately think of the constitution especially in the last few years that's how we've been invoking ambedkar but i want us to look at both a pre constitutional as well as a coeval constitutional moment one is states and minorities which addresses caste and class in very interesting ways i don't think he has a blueprint so much as a program that allows him to point out that if you want 
economic and social justice. You have to understand the economics of caste. You also have to understand the sociology of economics. You know, he points to both things in uh, states and minorities because, as he often says, see, labor and caste society is choiceless. You are sort of uh, burdened with a certain kind of labor, and you've got to struggle if you want to become something else. And secondly, you are struck with vocations you don't particularly have a talent, aptitude, or interest in. And if you are a sanitary worker, if you are a construction laborer, you're doing it because that's given to you, not because you want to build a house. You may want to play the violin. So he understood that very well, and he tried to address it in a sort of political economic terms in states and minorities. I don't know if we should treat it as a blueprint so much as a point of departure for us to think productively about caste and class. And sadly enough, it was submitted to the Minorities Committee, the Fundamental Rights Committee. Um, not all of its content was taken on board when we were drafting the Constitution. The other moment is the moment of the Hindu Court Bill. You know, Ambedkar, uh, we were often told, you know, we had to struggle very hard and people weren't supporting him. But actually, it's not as black and white as that. He had plenty of supporters in the Constituent Assembly's legislative wing. All the women supported him. Number of Gandhians supported him. The contingent from the Madras presidency supported him. A section from the Bombay presidency supported him. But it was not so much a question of support, but what did Ambedkar see himself doing with the Indo Court Bill? Because the kind of uh, changes uh, that were proposed in the law of marriage, maintenance, divorce had already been argued for by the various law committees before. Many women's groups had been part of those consultations. But I think Ambedkar brought something very unique to that debate by saying, look, we need to codify this, saying that put it all together so it forms one coherent piece of legislation where no one ever says that we have to change it anymore. And it was important for him because he felt, look, we are actually giving these laws to ourselves. Earlier, we had accepted what the Manusmriti said, what the various commentators have said on Hindu law. Today, Hindus are giving themselves new secular laws. And these are not permissive laws. I'm not imposing this on you. All I'm saying is, if you want to live a non-caste existence, you will be protected by this law. So he was very clear as to what the HCB was all about. But he also felt it was the beginning of something revolutionary. Because he said, even in the Buddha's time, that wasn't done. You didn't have a chance to challenge the code of the Manusmriti. Buddhism doesn't have a jurisprudence of its own. So I think these two constitutional moments of the states and minorities and the Hindu court will hold immense possibilities for us to think about caste and class on the one hand, caste and gender on the other, and put the two together. And then you have something from where we can move on to discuss these things as they are relevant to us in our own time and place. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to just leave the floor open. If there was anything else you wanted to say before we head to the rapid fire round. Um, very briefly, first of all, thanks for these wonderful questions. Uh, but also, I think it's very important not to instrumentalize Ambedkar and to keep reading him and returning to him, seeing him in the context of his contemporaries, but also seeing him as someone who is a living inspiration. And what is it that makes him alive to our own times? Um, and what is it that um, he undertook? which was historically profoundly consequential and to value that in, 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 in smaller and greater ways. This is what uh, I would like all of us to do. Yes, yes. And, and I'd like to start with our rapid fire round now with uh, the first question. Uh, what's one aspect of Dr. Ambedkar's writing and actions that you'd like to learn more about? I would like to learn more about his thoughts with regard to what did he expect will happen to social affection after conversion. 
how do we think that we could expand the sphere of love that would some be something that I would have loved to hear more from him what is something that you're skeptical about in his work what um, i constantly keep thinking of is how did he imagine an unitary indian state capable of even handed democratic justice and equality and what is one recommendation um uh, to further and unify fragmented social movements fight against your own caste family and self extend unconditional maitri towards anyone that you work with even if you violently disagree with them be civil in disagreement be affectionate in counseling respect for different points of view okay uh, thank you so much that was an awesome um rapid fire round um and thank you again for joining us on research radio we covered a lot of ground today and um it was a really insightful conversation thank you very much abhishek for putting these questions together and thank you epw i hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation with digita i do recommend checking out her epw articles for more insights we'll be back with a new episode on wednesday as part of our new series that explores multiple dimensions of dr ambedkar's thought and practice take care and until next week